The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Here, reading from Genesis, chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 19. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the bird of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth and to every bird in the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it... God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are generations of heaven and on earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And God planted a garden in Eden in the east, where he put man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to to water the garden, where it divided to become four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, where the, it is the one where the land flowed around the whole land of Avila, where, it is, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and, ox, and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Jihan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a fit helper for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
that's a lot of scripture. First off, Ben, as you guys are sitting down, I just wanted to kind of publicly thank you guys for the way you lead us in, in worship and in, in the musical worship in the morning um, and the way you're raising up the screens. You guys do so, so humbly. And I, I do appreciate, and I think we all do, how the worship's not about the band up here and it's not about the team and they do a really good job of pointing us to Jesus and not making it about them, not being distracting. And it's just, man, it... It does my soul well. So I, I want to thank you guys. And, and uh, man, I really don't even want to preach. I just want to bring you guys back up here and do it again because that's how good it was. That's a lie. I do want to preach. Okay. I repent, Father. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. All right. Let's pray. Let's get started. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son that you have given us. I thank you for the gift of your word to teach us, to instruct us that we are not all sufficient on our own. We need something from the outside to give us wisdom, to give us insight, to fill us with purpose. And uh, you are God, the uncreated creator, and you gave us by design, you gave us a specific purpose to fulfill. And when we fulfill that purpose, we are complete. We have joy. Uh, we um, have a full life. So I ask that we would learn of that, that we would learn of you, that we would um, walk in your ways so that we could be um, joyful in our life and not just begrudgingly with our head down pushing through this life, but we could enjoy it. Um, You are a gift to us, God. And I ask that you would speak through my mind, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords today, that it would be all of you and very little of me, Father, that you would anoint the ears of the people in this room to hear your word, what you have to say for them to them this morning. Um, This is for you. This is for your glory. This is for your namesake. This is for our city. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the book of Genesis. We're going verse by verse all the way through the book of Genesis. It's a large undertaking. Uh, So I'm not going to give too much commentary on that. Last week, we saw how God created the world in the first five days and everything in it to serve his purposes. He was, as it were, raising the curtain on an unfolding drama of redemption. And as he said over and over, it was good. Today we're going to cover day six and seven. And like always, we have a lot to cover. Uh, Day number six is all about our origins. Somebody say origins. All right. The Bible is going to tell us where we come from. This is really helpful for me because when I was doing a report on my ancestry in school, I asked my great-grandpa where we came from, and in his southern drawl, he said, Son, we just always been here. (laughs) Now, that, of course, was not quite accurate, nor was it very helpful on my report. Uh, But it's helpful to find out where we come from. You know, sometimes knowing where someone comes from just makes everything click for us. We're hearing something and we're like, oh, where are you from? Arkansas. Oh, that makes sense now, right? Oh, okay, I get it. I can put two and two together, all right? So that's what we're going to do today. See, Genesis tells us where we come from. So we learn about our origins and we also learn a a lot more about the author of the story, God. He's kind of a big deal. 
Uh, my prayer today is that you would see him as he is. You would see him clearly that he is a big deal, that everything exists for him and for his glory. And we're not the predominant um, author of the story, but he is. This world doesn't exist because of us. It exists because of him. One of the first things that we notice as we read verse 26, and that's where we start out. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Genesis 1, 26. We're going to go verse by verse through this. And if you don't have a Bible, all of our liturgy, all of our scripture is on version. So if you have a, the Bible app on your tablet or your iPhone or your Android, you can just uh, search live events, Sacred City Church, and all of our stuff is right there. So one of the first things that we notice in verse 26 is this. Then God said. We've already talked a lot about God speaking into creation. God is a speaking God. Thank God he's not silent and he's away from us. And it's up to us to figure out what he wants us to do and who we are. He speaks to us. Somebody say, thank you, God, right? And we can learn about him because he's spoken to us. That's a gift. All right. But what does God say right away? Let us, and we're going to, guys, listen, we're jumping on a, a, a motorcycle that's going 55 miles an hour. Okay. I'm just telling you that. All right. So just hang on. Okay. I don't have time. We can't rev the engine. We're, we're, we've popped the clutch now and we just got to jump on. Okay. We've got 50 chapters to cover. All right. And, and, a, and a brother in the band said that he made a pact that he's not shaving his beard until we're out of Genesis. Okay. So unless this guy's got plans to look like Gandalf, we've got to move here. Okay. <clears throat> so one of the first things we see in verse 26 is that this God said, let us make man in our image. Okay. This is weird. God, the God of the Bible, is an us. The God of the Bible is an us. This sentence is absolutely pregnant with meaning and controversy. People have been burned at the stake for this, for, for getting this wrong here, okay? So we, we probably should pay attention, all right? Big deal here. Where nobody's getting burned at the stake for getting this wrong anymore, but... You just get deemed a heretic and, and you get way off into crazy um, things. You, you miss who God is. You misunderstand theology. You misunderstand how to worship him rightly. You misunderstand how we're made, what our origin is, if you get this wrong. Okay, so it's that important. So God is one. He alone, he alone is sovereign. He's the ruler. He's the creator. He's the author overall. He rules alone. He's the only uncreated creator. He's God Big G of God's little G. But God exists in three distinct persons. Theologians call this the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? He's triune. He is tri, three, un, and one. He is three in one. Now, I would try to illustrate this for you. Okay? But every single analogy fails. Okay? It's kind of like water, H2O, three parts, one thing. It's kind of like man, we're soul, mind, spirit, blah, blah, blah. All of them fail. There is nothing in creation to compare this to. Okay? He is absolutely one God, God of gods, but he is absolutely three distinct and separate personalities in that one God. All right? Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God but they're all one. Did I twist you up there? See, this is easy to teach my son, right? My, five, my five-year-old, he's like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. no, you don't, but that's how we should accept it. Three, is it three or is it one? Yes. Okay, let's go with that then, right? 
Now, this is, this is what, what's so beautiful about this. God exists as three in one. He is in himself, in himself, a loving community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have coexisted together since all eternity past. So there was never a time, well, time didn't even exist, but there was never a time where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit weren't in a loving community. It's how they exist. This is good for a number of reasons. Number one, God himself, in his nature, in his origin, he teaches us that there is unity in diversity. There is unity in diversity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're the same, but they're different. That's how we we know that we can be unified and still be diversified at the same time. We can have different races of people, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different um, upbringings, but we can still be united in the gospel. God in himself teaches us this. At different, God, this, it also teaches us this, that God himself humbles, this is crazy, God, who has no business humbling himself because he's worthy of every possible praise anything could possibly give him. This God humbles himself for the sake of the other members of the Trinity. It's like, C.S. Lewis says, the Trinity is like a dance. You go first. No, you go first. No, I'll lead. No, you lead. It's like a dance that goes back and forth. At different times in scriptures, you see the Father praising and submitting to the Son and just glorifying the Son. At other times, you see the Son submitting to the Father, even to the point of death. And He's saying, glorify your Son. And God says, I have glorified myself and I will glorify myself once more when He's on His way to the cross. You see the Holy Spirit submitting to both the Father and the Son. And completing the work of salvation and and bringing messages of the Spirit and and giving the gifts to His church. So you see this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, everybody submitting to each other. This is where we get the, the topic of eldership and that the elders of the church should be mutually submitting to one another. And there should never be one guy that just runs the church like he's a little dominion. There should be a plurality of elders across that mutually submit to one another and say, is this what you feel like the Spirit is doing? Yes, this seems good to us and the Spirit that this is what, what's going on. This is why we have a, an external advisory board of elders in, at Cormdale Church in, in Omaha that we can go to and we can get counsel and they can coach us and they can oversee us. And, and I submit the budget to them and they approve it. And I'm not just saying, you know what? Hey, babe, you want a new car? Raise, right? Give myself a raise. Be nice, be nice, but I don't trust my own heart with that. I realize that I'm desperately wicked, and when money gets tight, I'm, I need a raise. Mama needs a new pair of shoes, right? So we've submitted that to eldership. There's a unity and diversity. There's a plurality of leadership. We can mutually, humbly submit, all right? This is where we get headship and submission in the church for, or heads, headship and submission in the family, Wives submit to their husbands. Why? Because Jesus submits to the Father and the Spirit submits. That's where we get it. But this also means, this is, what I, this is one of the best parts. This also means that God in himself, the triune God, is in himself love. First John tells us that God is love. Well, how could God be love if he's one? Love isn't love until it's expressed itself in love, correct? Love isn't love until I have loved. How is God loved? God loves the Son. God loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. It's this mutual loving relationship. So God in himself, in the Trinity, is love. At the core of the Trinity is self-sacrificial love. And the implications of this are staggering. 
If God is love and he dwells in a community of perfect love and God has been love ever since eternity past. So there was never a moment in time. Oh, I hate even using this because he was not in time at the time. He's in eternity past. But there was never a moment where God was not loved. There was never a moment where God was not loving. God always eternally existed as a loving community. What does that mean for us? That means this. And I hope after the sermon today, you walk away with this at the bare minimum. God is a happy God. In himself. He's been perfectly loved by the Father. Jesus has. The Father has been perfectly loved by the Son. The Spirit is like working between them and loving them both. They exist in a happy community, in a loving community. God is happy. If you leave with anything, leave with that today. God is happy in and amongst himself. He's a God who is well-loved and he is well-pleased in himself. And listen, and therefore doesn't need us to be happy. That, some of you walk, away, walk around with the weight of trying to always please God. I want to make God happy. He'll be angry with me if I don't do this. He'll be upset with me. When I go to God, he has the frown, the eternal frown. <sighs> really? That's it? You're only serving one day a week? You're only giving that much? You've only adopted that many children? Really? Hmm. Do you ever hear of Mother Teresa? <laughs> she knows how to love. Right? That's how we approach God. That's how we feel about God. And that is a lie. That is a figment of our imagination. That is our idolatrous heart that's been corrupted by sin that causes us to view God in that way. God is partying right now. God is enjoying himself right now. God is happy in himself right now. God is joyful right now. This is good news this morning. This is good news for us. If God is happy right now, he doesn't want or need your white knuckle begrudging obedience or submission to him to make him happy. God is glorified. We like to say God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, when we're happy in him, God is glorified. When we're joyful, when our joy runneth over in him, he is glorified. God is after your joy not your straight-laced obedience. So we have this happy God, this happy God creating out of the overflow of his own happiness. This is brilliant to me. God's not bored on some eternal Saturday morning, sitting there going, hmm, Jesus, I'm really not that into you anymore. Let's make some people and animals and stuff. I'm really bored. God is happy. He's joyful. His cup is running over. And like a marriage, like a union, where the two get together and there's this mutual love and this mutual sacrifice and they're giving and they're happy in the home. Now what do we do? Let's just make some babies. Our cup runneth over. Our joy runneth over. And out of this loving submission, children come. We're not sitting at home going, you know what? I think we get way too much sleep. (laughs) 
I think we get way too much sleep. I think we have too much money. Um, I'm just tired of buying stuff for myself. So let's breed. L- let's create these little selfish versions of ourselves that all, always take, 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 and never tell us thank you. And let's just do that for like 20 years. Is that cool? Babe, can we do that? Does that sound fun? But this is exactly what really happens, right? This is exactly what... Like, I enjoy my family. I enjoy my kids. We had a... I mean, Saturday... This Saturday was a a Sabbath for us, and it was wonderful. I went and got donuts for the kids. Bring them back. Kids get donuts. We go for, like, a four-mile hike in the woods. We come back. We play football for a little bit. And then my son comes in and says, All right, what's next, Dad? I'm bored. I'm like, What do you mean, what's next? You are... Go take a nap. Right? So, this is a happy God. He creates because He wants to. He creates because He wants to bless us and and put His happiness on us. Yeah, you're going to have to be close, AJ, because I want to adjust it, but I don't want it to make a bunch of noise. So, So if you guys don't know, I was a wrestler in high school and college, and I had these obnoxious wrestler ears, okay? So these things just don't fit around my ears very much anymore. Okay, all right, we'll see. Okay, so we have this happy God creating out of the overflow of his own happiness. And this happy God says this, let us, this community, let us make man in what? Our image. Now listen, okay, big, you know, I want you guys to know this is why you pay me. Okay, right here. Here's a big theological term, uh, number two. Okay, first we had doctrine of the Trinity. Now we have what's called imago Dei. It's It's a Latin phrase that means the image of God. Man man and woman, were created in Imago Dei, in the image of God, all right? Now, not only is God a trinity, but that trinity has made us in some way in his image. This is the Imago Dei. It's Latin, all right? Now, what does it mean? Here's the big question. What does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? And that alone, I'm gonna tell you, that question alone could be a whole sermon series, all right? I would love to do that someday. But right now, I'm going to have to... Again, we're jumping on the motorcycle at 55 miles an hour. We're just going to have to fly through this, okay? That question alone could fill up an entire sermon series. It's a big question with implications that want run really deep. But for right now, all I'm going to say is that this means that human beings have inherent, somebody say inherent, dignity, value, and worth. Not because they are useful, but because they have been made Imago Dei in the image of God. Now that right there is going to be enough to chew on for a week for you. Human beings, all human life has inherent in themselves dignity, value, and worth because they've been made Imago Dei. John Calvin and Augustine said that the image of God is like a mirror in man. Like man is like a mirror that reflects something of who God is to the world. All right? I like that analogy. I like that illustration for several reasons because in a couple of weeks here, when we, when we get to the fall of man, you're going to be able to understand that this mirror that was meant to just straight up reflect God to a watching world. Adam and Eve, they're a mirror. God would bless them. They bless the world. They were meant to show God. God is humble. God is gracious. God is a loving community. God embraces the other. God is intimate. God, um, there's unity and diversity. They were meant to reflect that to a world. That's what they're meant to reflect. But because of sin, 
that mirror is more like a carnival mirror now. And now we reflect a broken image of God to the world. We are selfish. So we can, in our selfishness, we can reflect that our God is a selfish God. In our selfishness, we can reflect that God is not happy with us because for some reason in our soul, we're not happy. So I like that image, that that the, the image of God is like a mirror that's supposed to reflect something of God to a watching world. I would love to spend all day on this, but we're just going to have to leave it. We're going to have to go on. But every single human being is made in the image of God and therefore has inherent dignity, value, and worth. Now listen, this is the Christian and the Jewish perspective. One more time. Hopefully it's good. All right. I would like to take a moment and contrast this ethic with the ethic with what I'll call the performance ethic of our culture. It's the dominant ethic, uh, bioethic of our culture today. Okay, I'm going to call it the performance ethic. Our culture says those who perform well, they have dignity, value, and worth. If you want to have value, you have got to be able to contribute to society. You, your value, therefore, is not inherent. It can be lost and it must be continually earned. The implications of this are staggering and represent a huge difference between Christians and the culture that we live in. I'm just going to jump right in. And I, reckon, I, I realize and recognize that this is a touchy subject that I'm bringing up, but I'm, going, um, and I, uh, but I'm going to step boldly out here and have to do this. Why is abortion such a big deal to Christians? Because we believe that every single human being has inherent dignity, value, and worth. That baby in her womb is Imago Dei. Even in the womb, Imago Dei. Scripture tells us that God knows us before we were in our mother's womb. That our personhood starts at conception. Actually, it's eternally present with the Father. And then it happens, life happens at conception. But listen... But our culture says that a woman's right to choose includes terminating her unborn child's life. See, that child is not useful yet. They haven't added to society yet. They haven't performed yet. And therefore, that child's life has no value. Our country performs 1.2 million abortions each year. Almost 60 million abortions in this country since 1973. 60 million. And listen to this. 85% of those, 85% were for the sole reason that the baby would be an inconvenience. 85%. It's a bad time. I'm in school. I've got a new job. I'm young. I'm not ready. It was unexpected. 85%. Listen, as Christians, we love women. We love babies. We believe both are Imago Dei. They have inherent dignity, value, and worth. And unlike our culture, we want to stand up for the weak. We want to stand up for the least of these, the ones without a voice, 
those who cannot protect themselves. But this is where this evolutionary thinking has deeply impacted our culture. See, when a person is no longer useful, useful, our culture says they can now be terminated. Our culture says that a person's dignity, value, and worth must be earned and re-earned constantly. But Genesis 1 tells us that every single person has inherent dignity, value, and worth. Born and unborn. Healthy and the sick. Rich and the poor. Young and the old. Brilliant and the simple. Because we all bear God's image, all are imago Dei. Now, this is where our culture, this is where the stream of our culture is heading. If you get too sick, unplug you. What is life if, if a person's just laying, if they're, you know, paralyzed, they're not useful anymore? This is the ethic, the performance ethic that's just filling our cities and filling our culture and filling our nation. And the Christian has a different ethic. All life, all life, all human life has inherent dignity, value, and worth. And the strong, unlike evolutionary thinking, the strong don't oppress the weak. In Christianity, the strong support the weak. The strong stand up for the weak. I'd love to spend more time on that, but I'm going to have to move on. Verse 28. Actually, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. This is the first poetry in the Bible. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the first poetry in the Bible. Uh, God gave it to us so that we can memorize it, so we can have something to hold on to, that lyrics sometimes grip us in ways just theology or just history um, doesn't. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I love this. Look at God here. First off, we're going to look at God. God is a God who blesses. He provides and freely gives what Adam and Eve needed. He gave... God is a God who blesses, He gives, He provides, and He freely gives what Adam and Eve needed. Food, He gave them water, He gave them oxygen, He gave them sunlight, He gave them gravity, He gave them everything they needed, and He also gave them a mission. We call this mission, theologians call this mission, we call this mission, the cultural mandate. God says, this is your purpose. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Make babies. go. All right. Be fruitful and multiply. 
make babies. All right, first thing. God says, go make babies. And I want, to, I want you to hear this. We believe, it's part of our ethic, it's part of who we are. We believe that one of the things we do is we're fruitful. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Do you hear that? Children are a blessing from the Lord. And the psalmist says, or, or, uh, that, that, that blesses the man whose quiver is full of them. I want to be a man with a quiver full of kids. All right? I'm working hard at that right now. Okay? I've got three People ask me, do you know what causes that? Yeah, I do. And I hope to make more, even though my wife, you know, whatever. We'll see. We'll see. See, Lord, work on her. That's where I'm at right now. All right? But listen, our culture, our world sees children as, a, as, a, as a, something that holds us back from achieving what we want to achieve. Something that, that, that's a burden to us. That's why you have... Women wanting to work until they're 40 and then all of a sudden deciding, I want to have babies. I've achieved everything I want to in the workplace. Our bodies aren't made to do that. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And we want to be a church that promotes that, that teaches, that raises, that, that trains parents to, to love their children, to shepherd their children, to lead their children well. That they're not a hindrance from you achieving the purpose of your life. They're a large part of you fulfilling the cultural mandate or the purpose of God in your life. This part could get me in a lot of trouble. And I, I apologize if I do offend somebody, but I just want, I want you to do this. Think about this. In our culture, marriage is going out of style. For some, it's going out of style. For others, um, and like homosexuals, they're wanting to be married. Um, we're, we're having child, less children, and we're having... Um, and we're waiting later to have children. And, and obviously, you know, homosexuals can't have children. So God says, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to have children and a lot of them and enjoy them. So what naturally, this is completely natural, but what naturally happens if homosexuals can't have children, if the worldview of the culture says have less children because they take away from you, and the Bible is saying, make a lot of them and fill the earth and, and teach, them, teach them my ways. What is the earth naturally going to be filled with over a, period of, a long period of time? Our children will continue to have children, have children, have children. And the culture of this world, the main ethos of this world is saying, is burning itself out. Homosexuals can't reproduce. Our culture is saying, it's ne- we don't want babies. They, they stifle us. So naturally, if we understand this and we fulfill the mission of God, there should be more and more and more God-loving, God-fearing, God-worshipping, God-living Christ followers over the face of the earth. This is God's plan to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We call it the cultural, cultural mandate. Make babies. Now listen. Make culture. Build cities, invent stuff, form governments, spread over the face of the earth, and do all this in your Imago Dei-ness. All of that is in the cultural mandate. I'm really thankful that God, when he was making us, he didn't say, and here is your purpose. Be an accountant. Oh, my. I would hate my life. I know there's some people out there that love numbers, okay? But if all of us had the same calling, exactly the same, fulfill it this way. Make a widget. 
And this is all we do all day long. God is incredibly creative. God is incredibly fruitful. God is incredibly blessed, blessing us in incredible ways. And he's saying, spread across the face of the earth and make culture. God in his graciousness gives us everything we need to accomplish this. He truly blesses people. He gives them creativity. He gives them passion. He gives them a desire to explore new places. Do you think a dog or a bear or an animal looks out at God's creation and sees the tallest mountain and says, I want to go there. I think he looks out across the ocean and says, I wonder what's out there. I'm just going to start swimming. No, but human beings do. There's no mountain. We look at Mars and we're like, hmm, I wonder what's up there. God did this. He put this inside of us that we have a desire to create. We have a desire to explore. We have a desire to expand. But out of all of this now comes culture. When God is telling them here is make a culture. Make a culture that glorifies me. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves along the ground. As we read the rest of the Bible, we get to the book of Revelation. What is the culmination of this culture-making work at the end of time? It's a city. It's the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. So we begin in a garden, but we end in a city. What that tells us is that God's culture-making intentions are urban in nature. God is a city God. And what I'm saying is that God's heart for culture is a city. See, culture is what we live. It's what we eat and what we drink. It's where we work. It's who we love. It's how we marry. It's how we raise our kids. It's how we entertain ourselves and spend our time and our money and our energy. And it's how we educate ourselves. Culture is like a big junk drawer term for life on this earth. It's all the stuff we do. It's how we think. It's what we do. It's who we are. God created us to create culture. God made us to make culture. That's why we make culture. Human beings, we make clothing, we make language, food, music, entertainment, the arts, education, family, politics. All of this comes out of the cultural mandate. And in Matthew 5, 41, Jesus says that we are like a city that's set on a hill. That's his definition of Christianity, a city. See, sacred city, you are a city within the city. You are a light city within the city of darkness. You are a kingdom that is countercultural. The way we do sex, the way we do marriage, the way we do food, money, entertainment, hobby, it's all different from the way people do it who don't know God. Because we've been reading the book. We know why we're here. We know our origin. We know why God made us and what he made us for. We are here to build a city and make culture for the glory of God. We are not playing church. We are not doing church. We are the church, the people of God, and we're here to make good culture for his glory. Some of us, you're like, whoa, I just thought I was showing up for, for church. No, 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 no. This is a part of what we do. The church is the people, and the people make good culture for the glory of God. We want to live our ways. If you're an accountant, do it to the glory of God. If you're a musician, do it for the glory of God. That is your high calling. Make babies, expand the kingdom, live life in a way 
that shows people what God is like. We exist to make disciples, plant churches, and renew our city. That's why we're here. That's the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. Verse 31. And God saw that everything He made, everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Can I, can I just throw it against the wall, possibly? Okay. Thank you. Oh, Jarek, you are a lifesaver, brother. Thank you. Okay. Genesis 2.1. Or where are we at? I'm sorry. Gen- uh, 131. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Again, listen to this. This happy God. Parents, I'm going to get this. I'm going to go after you right now for a second. This happy God, and I'm going at myself at the same time, is an affirming God. And he saw that it was good. And we see him over and over saying it was good. How often do you affirm your children, your spouse, We can go on the people in the missional community. You say, that is good. God is an affirming God. He blesses. He gives grace. He pronounces it is good. Fathers, you need to pronounce things over your children, especially your young daughters. Pronounce that she's beautiful. Pronounce that she's loved. Pronounce that she's made in the image of God. Pronounce that you're thrilled with what God's doing in her life. You need to be pronouncing, not nitpicking. Pronouncing over her. You know what? When you see something good in her, you don't just say, wow, you're awesome. Because you can raise these little self I am awesome, right? You see all these little divas on whatever that show is on TLC with all these little princess girls, right? You don't want to create that, but what you do, this is how you do it. Listen, and God has been teaching me this. This is how, we don't affirm people and just go, you're awesome. You don't, you know, you deserve so much. You deserve it, girl. Bad theology, we deserve death. This is how you affirm. You know what? When I saw you share that with your sister, I'm really thankful that God is at work in your heart right now, Javid. When you, whatever you did, I can see God is at work in you. I am thankful that your God is softening your heart to be obedient to your mother. You're affirming the work of God in the person, not the person themselves. Big difference. If you're just affirming them, you puff, you can puff them up. Did, I, did my mic just go out? This is awesome. Well, oh. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in for the long haul. So if I'm here at 9 o'clock at night still preaching this sermon, that's what I do, okay? So but we need to take a time out and take a, like a restroom break and come back, get some refreshments. I'm down. 
That's why my mama used to pack peanuts and candy in her purse, okay? That's what you're supposed to do at church. We're going to be here for a while. We good? Okay. Cool. All right. So God is an affirming God. I think as a church, this is what, listen, as a church in your missional community, this is what I'm asking from God right now for us as a church, that we learn how to affirm the work of God in each other really well. When someone repents, we say, you know what? I am thankful that God is at work in your heart. No one repents on their own. This is evidence that God is moving in you. When someone volunteers to watch our kids, I am really thankful that God is working a humble heart in you, that you'd be willing to serve us in this way. I am so thankful to God. We're reflecting it back to God. We're affirming them. We're affirming that they're being obedient to the Father, but we're affirming the work of God in this person. All right, so here we go. Still moving. Genesis 2.1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them... And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 2-1, here is Saturday Sabbath. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Church, does God finish his work? Yes. This should be a great encouragement to you. Has God begun a work in your life? Has God shown you some of himself? Has God revealed himself to you? Has God started a work and a progress in your life? He will see it to the end. Paul says that he who begun this work is faithful to see it through to completion. God will work on you until you are very good. God will work on history until it's very good. God is working everything out until the end. Until the end when his work is done and he can declare it all to be very good again. Now, we sin and we rebel and we make mistakes and errors and we jack stuff up in the middle. But God is a good God and God finishes his work. He says he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. God does not abandon his work in your life. God is a really really great God. That God finishes His work. He finished His work of creation. He'll finish His work of making us new creations. That should be an encouragement to your soul. So in verse 1, we hear God completes His creation. He works for six days, and then He sits back, and He rests, and He enjoys His creation on the seventh. This is amazing here. God loves the weekend. He made it. God said rest is good. Naps are good. I thought I'd get an amen, especially on a Sunday. People are thinking, man, you better not preach too long because i got a nap coming up here, brother. (laughs) You have a theological reason to leave now if my sermon goes too long. I'm going to rest. God says it. Okay, now listen. I love asking my son this question. Does God rest because he gets tired? Is he just like worn out after six days of speaking? Ugh. I just need a nap. Absolutely not. God never gets tired. And the point of rest isn't just to... Isn't because you're tired. The point of rest, listen, is to enjoy. God rested on the seventh so he could enjoy his creation from this first six days. The point of rest is to enjoy it. So many people work and they don't enjoy. 
Some of the richest people I've ever met don't ever get to enjoy what they've done. I know people who work really hard to get a boat. I'm like, oh, sweet, it's a killer boat. When you go boating, well, I've been out since like well, two years ago. What? You bought a boat and you, and you have to clean it. Like you still have to take care of it and pay rent to keep it somewhere. And you don't, you don't even get to enjoy it. Why? Because we're so good at working, we don't even know how to enjoy the gifts God has given us. And God shows us by creation. Work six days, rest one day. God gives us six days to work, six days to make babies, build cities, create culture. And he gives us one day to sit back and enjoy them. This is a phenomenal, this is just, for most of us, we, we grew up or we, we have this little thing in our head that thinks God is never happy. God is, wants you always producing, always doing more, always achieving. You're never good enough. He's never satisfied. By creation, he shows us that's not true. Make six days, seventh day. It's good. It's very good. He sits back and he enjoys it. Listen, you've made the kids. Now enjoy them. Parents, you've made the kids. Now enjoy them. Don't see them as an obstacle to your peace and sanity. Just go downstairs and leave me alone. Just get out of the kitchen while I'm making dinner. Right? Get off of my leg. You've made them. Enjoy them. God has given you a Sabbath day to enjoy them. Go for a bike ride. Take a walk. Play a sport. Rest. Relax and enjoy the good gifts that God our Father in His graciousness has given us. God is so good. He's just so gracious. Now, what I want you to see here through all of this, I want you to see that this really is the first liturgy. What we do, how we do our services, they're liturgical. The, hist- the, earliest, service- the earliest Christian services, Sunday morning services that we have on record come from the early first, second century, and they're all liturgical in nature. Just like what we do. There's a reader, there's a response, there's scripture, there's a response. It's not just free-flowing and everything spontaneous. I was telling the people before service, how many times are you really proud of the spontaneous things you say to your wife? Right? But the, the thoughtful note that you wrote out, she kept it, didn't she? Mm-hmm. She did. Liturgy's the same way. It's a thoughtful response. It shapes us into a certain type of people. And what I want you to see is this whole first chapter is very liturgical. God speaks. God creates. God sees. God says, it is good. And he does the same thing. Seven, six, and then, you know, kind of on the seventh day, he does the same thing over and over. He could have been spontaneous and said different things, but he didn't. He said the same thing. It's very liturgical. There's a rhythm to it. Morning one, uh, evening one, morning two, evening two. God says, God sees, God speaks, God says it is good. God enjoys. This is liturgy. It's pre-planned, it's poetic, and it's potent. Work six days, rest one day. Now this is just a little aside. 
I'm trying to close here. I find, what I find fascinating about this is that when this was written, the people of Israel were the only people on the planet who used a seven-day week to mark time. Go ahead. Go home. Wikipedia that. It's fascinating. The Sumerians, the, 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 all, the, all these other different uh, cultures, they were using five-day weeks. Japan was using a five-day week until uh, 1006 uh, A.D. They, they adopted the seven-day week. Europe had this, had this, you know, they had the seven-day week and they went to a 10-day week. And then, in the, and then in the 1800s, they went back to a seven-day week. It's, do, you, do you realize that every culture on the planet just about right now uses a seven-day week to mark their time? And this is the first documented book. This is, the, this is why it's, a, it's by nature of creation that this happened. God said, work six, rest one. Seven-day work week. There's a rhythm to it. There's a reason behind it. There's a liturgy. There's a purpose behind it. And now nearly every nation on earth has adopted this practice. It's amazing. One of my commentaries said this. Six days, for the first six days, space is being subdued. But on the seventh day, time itself is sanctified. Time itself is sanctified. Now, just by working six days and resting one, we are walking in the purpose of God. There's a sense just by enjoying a weekend, enjoying a Sabbath, working six days, producing six days, making culture six days, and then resting one. We're participating in something of the Imago Dei. We're, we're participating in something that God has sanctified and God has done for his own glory. I find that incredibly fascinating. Incredibly fascinating. So when we rest, you're like, Justin, why is this a big deal? Listen, when we rest one day a week, we're showing a watching world that God is in control. See, see, listen, you taking a Sabbath, I don't care. It's not about you. Will you burn out? Will you blow your adrenal glands? Will you be you know, all about performance and never be able to rest in the Father's love? Yeah, more than likely those things will happen if you're not taking a Sabbath. But it's not about you. When you're working seven days a week and you're running nonstop and you don't take a rest and you don't Sabbath and enjoy your family, you're showing a false gospel to the world. You're preaching a message to the world that says this, God is not sovereign, God is not control. If I don't work seven days a week and sin and ignore the ways and the, and the, and the construction of the way God created time, if I don't do this, everything will fall apart. The business will fail. The family will fail. The ministry will fail. The missional community will fail. The church will fail. I have got to work 24-7. That's what it's, that's the message it's preaching to a world. But contrast that. The to-do list, it ain't done. The kids, they're not fixed. The projects, they're just piling up. But I'm going to rest and I'm going to enjoy and I'm going to trust God that He's working on my behalf while I'm resting. And this is what part of what it means to be in the Imago Dei. As I try to land the plane this morning, can you see why this is good news? 
as followers of Jesus, we say, God is God. We're not. We're not. We can't compete with that. He tells us what good is. He says that all life is sacred. So we love life. We love people. We love the mentally challenged. We love the poor. We love the weak. We love the unborn. We are pro-life. I just feel good about that. Like, just, I just feel good about, like, that. that's something in my soul says, that is right. Not only that, but we're pro-city. We're pro-culture. We're pro-art. We're pro-music. We're pro-kids. We're pro-environment. And thank God, we're pro-napping. Right? Not now. Right, not right now. But napping later. This is our worldview. We're pro-God. God is good. And thousands of years after this was written, this good God sent the second member of the Trinity, Jesus. He sent him to earth. The earth that they had created together. For the only time in history, at 30 years, something in the Trinity... Dangerous. My language is dangerous here, but something in the Trinity is dislocated. They enjoy this loving community, but then for the sake of God's mission, Jesus left heaven and came to this earth, the earth that he had created, the earth that we polluted, to fix what Adam had broken. To live the perfect life and die the ultimate death to save us from our sins. What a good God. What a good and gracious God we serve. This is good news. This is our good news. If you come to church and you hear, go do better. He's not happy with you. That's not good news. The good news is the work is finished. God is happy in himself. God is satisfied with the work of Christ. And our righteousness, his satisfaction with us now, happens through faith in Christ. So when we come to God, we're coming to a good, happy, gracious, loving Father. That is good news. And for all the believers, the baptized believers in this room this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, this is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, and it's the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. We get to participate. Many people ask me what I believe about communion, and I'm just going to throw it out there really off the cuff here. <clears throat> Catholics believe that the body and the blood literally, it's called transubstantiation, and literally becomes the, when you drink it, it becomes blood, and it, when you eat it, it becomes flesh. Okay? They believe that it literally becomes the body of Christ when you eat it. So the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, is the main point of the whole service. Okay? 
Protestants, everybody else, reacts to that. And they go way too far to the other end. And they say, oh, no, it's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. Not a big deal. Let's only do it like once every six weeks. And, you know, it's not that big of a deal. So many of us are like, thanks, we're good. And, we, and it has no meaning. And if you read the scriptures, I'm just going to say this. Well, no, I don't want to go there. We're right in the middle. This is powerful. It's more than a picture. It's more than representing. It's re-presenting. Not that Christ is crucified again, but it's this is the body and this is the blood. And it might not, it doesn't physically change when it comes into me, but something spiritually happens. God is uniquely present here with us. There's a reason when Jesus came back from the dead, he's walking with people, eating them. They don't really recognize him. And then he broke, he had communion. He had the Lord's Supper. And as soon as he did it, boom, their eyes were opened. And they said, that's Jesus. I believe that some of you are, are walking through life, maybe with your eyes closed, maybe blinded some things. And I believe God changes it in, in the Eucharist, in communion. God can change it. I do believe this is the most important part. You'll hear 10% of what I say, you'll take home. But you eat the body and you drink the blood and it becomes a part of you. And that's grace. What do you do when you come up here? Did you make this? Did you work for this? Did you earn this? Is this based on your performance? You say, I'm lacking and I need from you. And this has been provided for you. This has been given to you. This is broken for you. This has been shed for you. And all you do is receive it. And God says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You're receiving it in yourself. And in that, Jesus is going with you. Something spiritually powerful takes place during communion. Between you and the Lord, and also between us as a community. We're brothers, we're sisters together. So I'm going to pray, and then men who are... I'm serving with me if you'd come up. Father, I do thank you for giving us something tangible. More than just a book, you gave us the sacrament of communion. You gave us the Lord's table where we break the body of Christ. We're reminded that you were physically broken for us. In time, you left the comfort of the Trinity in whatever way and became a man and put on flesh and you were incarnated in a culture and you lived a certain way and you died the death that our sins deserve. And your blood trickled down that old rugged cross and purchased our salvation for us. Your work made it possible. And I pray that as we partake in this, that we would, we would be reminded afresh that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are right, that you are perfect. In Jesus' name.